Hi, everybody. This is Boomer Esiason, and thank you for joining me for this week's edition of Game Time on Odyssey. Now, be my guest as I welcome in the world's top female alpine skier, Michaela Schifrin. Michaela, I'm so excited for this uh, interview. Welcome to Game Time. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, you know, I, I, listen, I, I, you are, uh, I, I can't even explain it. I mean, uh, watching the Olympics or watching the World Cup races, you're all over the place. I mean, you are just absolutely uh, an amazing athlete. Now, you've certainly been through a lot over the past few years. Disappointing, of course, in the Olympics in China, followed by a fourth World Cup overall championship, a serious back injury, a case of COVID-19, and unfortunately, the painful loss of your grandmother and, of course, your father. So I, I got to ask you, first and foremost, how, how are you doing these days? <laughs> um, uh, ups and downs, I would say, <laughs> like anyone. Yeah. I think it's like anyone in life. It's, it, every, everybody has ups and downs, and uh, I've had a lot more downs in the last couple of years than at any other point in my life, but I've certainly had my fair share of wonderful moments as well. Good. You know, we're going to get into all the skiing stuff a little bit later on, but I want to ask you about a recent essay that you wrote for the Players' Tribune about yeah. dealing with personal grief and your current perspective on life. So what, what prompted you to open up? Um, I mean, from the beginning, I, oh, I've always been fairly open, but after my dad's accident and his passing, sort of, I don't know if I actually consciously made the decision, but it, it, I guess it happened fairly naturally because so much of my life is public that maybe I would share a little bit, just, just a little bit of how I was feeling. And I also, it's important to me to keep like my social media and what I say to media and everything really true to what I'm actually feeling. Like, I don't want to say I'm having a great day when I'm really not having a great day. So I'll say, well, it's an okay day. So like trying to be honest in that way. And it started showing through, you know, on my social media. And then um, when we started the Jeff Schifrin Athlete Resiliency Fund for U US Ski and Snowboard Athletes, um, that was another piece where I, I started diving into talking, talking more honestly and really openly about some of this experience. And I strangely, I'm, I'm fairly okay talking about it in media, but every time I talk about it, it just brings things back and it's, it's, it's painful, but it's still somehow easier than almost addressing it on my own. And with this player's tribune piece, it's just like trying to, trying to get out there. What's really on, on my mind and on my heart and what people, a lot of other people might be feeling. There's been a lot of, lot of um, other people reaching out to me saying that was, you know, that's something that I really, it, it actually touched me because it's something I'm experiencing right now. And that, that's why I did it. That it's basically, because it's not, it doesn't help me to just go publicly and, and talk about all the painful things. It just, uh, maybe it's therapeutic to write, but sharing it is just, it just, and you just end up reliving that pain over and over again every time someone says something to you. But the upside of it is that it seems to help others. And that's the only reason. You know, it does help others, Mikhail. And it seems like you're actually trying to puncture 
the myth that for an athlete, when you're winning, everything must be okay, and when you're not winning, everything must not be okay. What do you think the average? Why do you think the average sports fan feels that way? Um, I think it's probably, I think it's probably fairly simple. People watch sports for entertainment. Sports is entertainment. That's the only reason we can't have a job. Is it's part of the entertainment industry, and people are willing to essentially pay in one form or another to watch us compete. They're watching sports because they want to feel somewhat uplifted. They want to cheer for cheer for their teams that they you know their favorite teams, or they want to I don't know cheer against a team, or they just they have a some kind of purpose that like the motivation is excitement. So when athletes talk about, well, first of all, when athletes win, and if it's your favorite athlete, it kind of makes you happy. So you want that athlete to be happy. And it's not really an easy concept to grasp that there are things going on in that athlete's life that you don't necessarily know. And even though they won, they may not actually be happy. They may be okay with that moment and feel some level of triumph, but they may not be feeling happy altogether. And on the flip side, if they lose, mm-hmm. somehow it's like you can be okay when you're losing as well. You're not you're not happy with it. You're not proud. But as far as life goes, it it is can be quite disconnected from your performance. And I think people just want it to be simple because at the end of the day, they're watching sports for uh, essentially the simplicity of it. You know, you've uh, man, you are deep. And uh, it's wonderful to see it. It really is. And, you know, to get to talk to you live like this is, is really an honor for me. Now, you've honored your dad in a number of ways. And let's start with uh, this message that has become your mantra. Be nice, think first, have fun. Now, how does that help you? Well, you know, some of these things, like, it's like putting pictures up around the house of my dad and my family and all of us together just memories of of a time when we were together and it's still painful to look at but it also can make me smile sometimes and be nice think first have fun it's just something that both of my parents told me and they told my brother since it's like one of the first things that I can remember in my life is just hearing them say be nice think first have fun so they've been telling that to me forever and and continued to use it kind of as a as a motto or mantra. And I guess it's just a it's fairly self-explanatory, but it's a simple reminder that you want to treat treat people well, um, use your brain <laughs> and you know, have fun. Having fun, it's not just like, okay, you know, go out and party or whatever. Like there's different kind of types of fun. And it was always more geared towards the the fun that you have when you're working hard at something and you and you improve, and that certainly can mean just just in taking a step back, relaxing, chill, enjoy life a little bit. Um, but it was more like when you're skiing, you know, why is skiing fun? And it can be because of the adrenaline. It can be because of the social side of things. For me, it was always because I love the tangibility that racing provided when you take a run and you have a time and your coach is videoing you. So you you compare your time with the video, you go back up, you try to tweak something, do it again, and either you're faster or slower. And that is somehow tangible. And I love that about it. I love improving it. So 
that's where the fun comes for me. And, and that's something my parents, my mom and dad, just kind of that perspective or philosophy they really instilled in my brother and myself from an early age. Yeah, I think it's a great way to honor your dad for sure. So we're just getting warmed up with the great Michaela Schifrin. We'll look back at her precocious passion for ski racing when game time continues right after this. Welcome back to Game Time. Michaela Schifrin was born in Colorado and grew up in New Hampshire. I remember my first real racing suit, she recalls. It was purple. I refused to take it off. I would wear it to bed every night, adding that a few years later when I was nine, I wrote in my journal, I want to be the best in the world. And man, you turned out to be the best in the world. Your parents, Jeff and Eileen, and your older brother, Taylor, were all competitive ski racers. So I would think it was going to be inevitable for you to be one yourself, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, it's some, somewhat just it's like a rite of passage in the Schiffer family. <laughs> yeah. You know, so was it a little bit of a culture shock going from Vail to New Hampshire? I know the snow is probably a little bit different, uh, a little bit colder, I would think, in New Hampshire. Yeah, um, that was actually, that was a tough time in my life. When we moved, I think for a, a solid year or a little bit longer, I cried almost every night because I missed, I missed my life and my friends and everything. And I mean, I was, you know, about seven or eight years old when we moved and there was so much that I just did not understand. Like I remember that first winter in New Hampshire, um, you know, there's the cold snaps and, and, uh, then there's the extreme, you know, rain downpours as well in the middle of the winter and coming from Colorado, I, I actually thought that it was, it was like against the forces of nature for the, it, for rain to happen in the winter. I thought like snow equals winter, rain equals summer. So it doesn't snow in the summer. So it doesn't rain in the winter. But, um, I just didn't really get the concept of like temperature and all that. So <laughs> we were uh, skiing in New Hampshire and, you know, totally bundled up. And it was raining. So first of all, it was like dumbfounded that it was raining while I was going up the chairlift for skiing. And I kind of asked my parents, like, what is it's not allowed to do this. Why is it doing this? But then later that pretty much that same day, the rain stopped and it got very near freezing, like very near zero degrees. And I had never experienced that kind of cold. So I asked my mom, like, does it get colder than this? Or is like, is this about it? Cause I don't know. I don't know if I want to be doing this, um, but it was just also like, yeah, culture shock with just making new friends for a while. I was really scared because, you know, if all of a sudden I find out that it rains in the winter, I, the, all what all the other concepts and rules in my life, all the structure that I was used to, I wasn't sure if that was true. So it's like, do they do sleepovers in, in the East Coast? Or yeah, we're okay here. Yeah, we're okay over here in the East Coast. We're actually somewhat normal. You know, I yeah. know Vail is a very special place. <laughs> I was just like, do am I allowed to have friends here, or what is it? just the simple things that a that a kid is thinking? And I don't. I may maybe I was the only kid that ever thought that kind of stuff. But 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. I learned a lot. And then once I got over that first period that, that was sad, I, I love it there. The East it's New Hampshire. I spent some time in Vermont. I've spent my family in New York. Um, it is, it's special. It's something completely special. And someday I see myself living there again. It, it, it's just, I love Colorado, but I claim the East Coast as well as my home. I'm glad to hear that. You know, I've interviewed some world-class athletes who have had some issues with their coaches, who mainly were their parents, but that does not seem to be the way that, well, it's not at all, uh, listening <laughs> to you talk about your dad and your mom and your brother, that Team Schifrin was there for you every step of the way to give you the, really the foundation to become the great skier that you've become. Yeah, um, I would say that family is the most important thing in life and my family has completely brought guided me and really brought me to where I am today and I wouldn't be the ski racer I am I wouldn't have the success I've had without without all of them without my brother and my parents and even you know the more extended family but my mom and dad they there's something special and the, I guess the values they've instilled in my brother and me and the, the guidance they gave us just to ha just understanding that, you know, if ski racing is really what we wanted to try to do, they would do everything in their power to help us improve and succeed and learn. And it just, yeah, it's so much of everything I've accomplished is just completely about them. It's, it's not something that I hold alone. I, I completely share it with those around me that, that have helped me so much. Yeah. I don't think people realize this at the young age of 15 is when you turn pro. What is that memory like? Obviously, you know, it's a dream you have to, to compete as basically, a, you know, a professional athlete in the top level and to win. That's, that's, of course, that's the goal, but um, you know, people kind of ask me like, is this, you know, do you think you're going to go to the Olympics? And yeah, hmm. you know, is this, you, you're going to do this. I'm like, I don't know. I just, I'm going to try and we'll see. <laughs> I think I'm pretty fast, but I just don't know. It was like when people asked me if you're going to the Olympics, I kept saying, well, I'm not sure if I qualify. I mean, I'm skiing fast now, but it just like, it, it was it wasn't until I won my first World Cup race that I actually realized I'm pretty okay at ski racing. And it wasn't until I actually went to the Olympics and won that first gold that I was like, maybe I should keep doing this for a little bit longer. You know, it's kind of funny, you know, at 17, you're win winning World Cup slalom races and I'm trying to figure out who I'm going to the junior prom with. Hey, I went to prom too. <laughs> okay, good. Just not, it wasn't, the, it wasn't your typical prom. It was a ski academy prom. So there were like oh. 60 students and, you know, bed and in bed promptly at 830 kind of a thing. But it was, it was still a prom. Remarkably, Michaela Schifrin was an Olympic gold medalist and two-time world champion before she was old enough to actually legally drink here in the United States. And once you started winning, Michaela, and winning and winning and then winning, <laughs> Did you ever grow tired of hearing the youngest women skier to do this and the youngest women skier to do that? No, that's something I definitely never grew tired of. I, I mean, one of my goals when I was younger 
you know, before I was racing World Cup was to be the youngest to break some of these barriers. And just to try to prove that some of the success athletes have had in life that you can, you can do it sooner. Not, not that I was trying to rush it. It's just like, why wait? Let's, let's see what my potential is and let's figure it out as soon as possible. And so, yeah, you know, hearing those titles, that's, that actually means a lot to me. You know, and inevitably you were going to be compared to the iconic Lindsey Vaughn. And I'm just wondering what kind of relationship you had with her and, you know, did she give you any tips or help you along the way? We, we have a respectful relationship. Um, when I came into racing, she, you know, she, she was a huge inspiration for me as for so many other athletes, so many young athletes out there. And she always will be. Um, and when I came into racing, it was sort of the beginning of a stint the you know, the beginning of her injuries and a long stint of her basically rehabbing trying to get back to racing. She was focusing more on speed at that time. So as far as building a really, um, a, a close friendship, we never really had that opportunity, mm -hmm. but I've always seen her as, well, the greatest gear racer of all time. <laughs> so, um, and as I was growing up watching her compete, it's something, it's something that inspired me really a lot. So, I don't know. It's just something like some athletes that have competed in, in sport, just in any sport, you can't take their name off of the list of record books. No matter what I do in ski racing, whether I break the all-time wins record or not, you can never erase some names from those record books. And she's one of them. Yeah, you're right. Uh, what did that feel like for you, the first gold medal to hear the national anthem being played and you standing there and your family being around you? What was that like? Yeah, that's the national anthem. That's something pretty emotional for me. Um, I know there's, you know, there tends to be controversy around it, but it's just something it, it's more of a personal thing because my dad in the beginning, you know, when I was 15, he had said, if you want to do this and you want to win World Cup races, you better learn the national anthem. Because if you win and they play the anthem, you're singing it. <laughs> and it was just it was just like, I don't know, family motto kind of a thing. Um, so when he was when he would come watch races, uh, he took pictures more for a hobby. He wasn't a maybe he wasn't a paid photographer, but he loved taking pictures and he'd come to races. He'd always have multiple cameras hanging around his neck and he'd get into the, into the, um, like the photographer's zone when I was on the podium or when I won the race and he'd be taking pictures while I sang the national anthem and he'd be singing with me. And I could always see him like the other photographers knew there's that's Jeff Schifrin and that's her father. And he gets to be up front and center. So he just found his place and he always got the best, best photos, like the, the uh, captured the emotions that nobody else seemed to be able to capture just because he knew when I was going to make a funny face or <laughs> something, <laughs> just be expressive. And uh, yeah, so when I when I got that first gold medal and standing on the podium there, I don't know, it was just he was there and he was singing and it's just a moment that 
that we have. It's something that is now it's a little bit sad and a bit painful because every time I've won since his passing, it's just a really harsh reminder that I'm never going to be able to do something like that with him again. And then I remember I'm never going to be able to do anything with him again. And yeah. Yeah. I, I can tell you, Michaela, I feel like I know your dad very well. And I think he raised you absolutely perfectly. And to be able to stand there, sing the national anthem with a gold medal around your neck and your dad taking your picture. You know what? It doesn't get much better than that. We'll return to examine how Michaela bounced back from some rough patches and unexpected turns in her magnificent career. Welcome back, everyone. After striking gold in the two prior Olympics, Michaela Schifrin went to Beijing with high hopes as she became only the second woman to race all six alpine skiing events. Sad to say she came up empty. Now, including a stunning three did not finishes. However, to her eternal credit, she never quit. She never made excuses and she never ducked the media. And for me, that's gold medal level uh, performance, uh, uh, you know, when you think about it, Michaela. And I just want to say you, you basically represented our country the way that I would want an athlete who went through what you went through to represent us. And the reactions on social media had to both be gratifying and frightening. I, I don't really want to get into the worst posts because I'm sure there's some people out there that probably said some really unkind things. But there had to be a number of people out there that were supporting you. There were. There was a lot of support. And I would say, as far as what I saw, there was more support than hate. And for sure, you pay attention to the hate and you just remember how awful people can make you feel. But um, there were so many athletes who reached out just to, even just to extend a, it's like holding your hand from a distance. They're just like, it's okay. You, like everybody, everybody knows you've had the success as well. And this wasn't your day. This wasn't your week, but that doesn't take anything else away from you. And it, it means a lot when it's coming from athletes like Simone Biles or Michael Phelps, or, you know, some of the most decorated athletes in the history of sport who say, Hey, trust me, I've had some down moments and it is going to be okay. Um, that's just, it helps you take yourself out of the moment a little bit and just think, think about what my, what, what my life is going to be like, Oh, I don't know, one week down the line or maybe three weeks down the line. Or when we, when we leave Beijing, I was like, once I get back to Europe and get a little bit of distance from the Olympics and this whole process and experience, maybe, maybe I'll start to feel like a little bit more like myself again. And, you know, Hey, I'm a ski racer. Yeah. But you know what the amazing thing is after all of that, you know, you come back and you basically uh, secure the world cup overall championships in France a month later. Yeah. Uh, you know, now I know in the media, it was all about redemption and bouncing back. And I, I have to tell you, I do a sports talk radio show in New York. And I remember talking about this saying, you know, well, I really felt great for you. I mean, and I, did, I don't know whether you use the word bounce back or redemption. I guess you don't look at it in those terms, do you? No, not really. I mean, it's more just continuing. It's not even bouncing. It's like, well, I never I never left. I just fell quite a few times. Um, and you know, that's what, that's what most of the people see because most people tune in to ski racing during, you know, they watch the Olympics and they'll watch any sport and they just know you're supposed to win the gold medal and you didn't. So you failed. And 
to be honest, I see it that way as well. But when I come came back to Europe and I got back on my skis training, like we were racing a week later after we arrived back from, you know, Beijing to Europe and, um, and I was on the podium. I nearly won the super do a super do race, which, you know, I hadn't really been even expecting to be that close. And then I was right there in the GS as well. And then I had another podium a week later and then, you know, went to world cup finals and won a downhill race at world cup finals. It was like, uh, there were some things that happened at the end of the season that um, it was it was special and I'm certainly proud of it. But it wasn't because I, I didn't change something. I didn't even change my mindset. I, I almost tried to forget the Olympics altogether and just pretend like I took a short hiatus from the World Cup circuit and then, you know, came back. And it, it wasn't about bouncing back or redemption or anything. It was just really just continuing and just getting back up again and putting one foot in front of the other. And um, if anything, it proved to me that the Olympics, that's one thing, but I'm, I am still, I'm still a good ski racer. Yes. You know, from where I sit, Michaela, you are fearless. Are you ready for a little game show that we call does Michaela know snow? Yeah, now I'm ready. All right, you ready? <laughs> All right, here we go. What color is snow? White. No, it's colorless. Whatever. It is. It's a reflection of the light bouncing off the facets of the translucent crystal, just so you know that, okay? Well, uh, that's no, no. arguable. Yeah, that no arguing. Hard. No it's arguing. This is what you see is white, and so it is white. And sometimes okay. it's brown, dirty snow. All right. Well, you see yellow snow too, and don't ever touch it. All right. Here is uh, another one. Is it true that no two snowflakes are ever alike? I've never seen two that are alike, but now, now you've just completely debunked everything that I think is right in the world. So uh, I'm going to say yes, but. Uh, the answer is no, because back in 1988, a scientist found two identical snow crystals in a Wisconsin storm. All right, see, here we go. On January 31st, 2016, 76,081 people gathered in Saskatchewan, Canada to take part in what activity? Ice fishing. Good guess. No, it was actually the largest snowball fight in history. Oh, is this All like right, here we go. Number, number four. Here. <laughs> Every snowflake starts with a tiny speck of what? <laughs> I don't know. Dust or pollen. I am very shocked here. I, I expected That's so much not, more out of you, Michaela. There this is, is not no a gold medal performance. So, okay, so if you eat snow, you're actually eating dust and pollen? Yeah, yeah, and it attaches itself. Water vapor needs to, to, to attach to something. How long does it take for the average snowflake to hit the ground? 45 minutes. Almost an hour. That's pretty there. good. All right, and finally, <laughs> here's something I know you don't have. Uh, what is Kenyaphobia? The fear of snow. Very good. There you go. That was perfect. All right. Thanks. Our thanks to you, Michaela. You're, you're a good sport. You're, you're a great, great representative for our country. And we appreciate you joining us here on Game Time. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right. She was great.
Hey, everybody, this is Boomer Esiason, and be sure to listen next week on my new Game Time podcast. And thanks for listening.